Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Derek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds, uh, authors, screenwriters, comic book writers, video game writers, about their writing process, how they broke into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. And um, We've got a great catalogue of, of guests now, so please do check out the previous episodes. Um, and we have another great guest this week. In fact, our 50th guest, even though this is episode 51, yeah. because Richard Morgan was split over two episodes. This is, a our, lot, Richard. <laughs> this is our 50th guest this week. And who is it, Tarek? We are chatting this week to the wonderful Joe Abercrombie, who is uh, very well known in the fantasy genre world. Mm-hmm. His um, first law trilogy, which is The Blade Itself, Before They Are Hanged, and Last Argument of Kings, that was a quite a big deal when it came out back mm-hmm. in uh, 2006, Six, I think, I think yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, really really big fantasy stuff, but a lot of humour. Yeah, um, it's it's very sort of... Uh, well, in the interview, Joe uses the phrase tongue-in-cheek, um, but that might give you the wrong impression, I think, <laughs> of some of it. I mean, it, it, it's proper, you know, fan- big fantasy plots and things like that, but the, the characters just seem a bit more real, I think, than yeah. sometimes maybe what you're expecting if you say the word fantasy they, they don't have that po-faced seriousness that i think a lot of fantasy can have yeah it, it moves very much away from that lord of the rings kind of like cliche that we you see a lot mm-hmm. and it's um and even game of thrones it's very it's mm-hmm. much more fun. which lord of the rings and game of thrones are great and oh, they're, no, totally. they're, yeah, 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 they're, they're their own thing but i think this is a you know it is a fresh voice i think you know it's a different take on Absolutely. it and it, um, yeah, and it was a lot of fun speaking to Joe as well. He's, you can yeah. just tell where that sort of the voice comes dry from. sense of humour comes <laughs> from. Um, so, uh, yeah, we we speak to him about how he got the the blade itself published, which again, as usual, isn't your your typical <laughs> write a query letter to an agent story. No, and uh, then uh, since then he's been pretty prolific, and we speak to him about that as well about the fact that you know there are certain fantasy authors that, that kind of get stuck in telling their long stories and it, and the fans get on their back and stuff. But Joe, thus far, hasn't hasn't had that problem and he's released two trilogies set in that world. He's also got a young adult trilogy as well, as well as some standalone novels. So um, he's been very prolific since, since uh, The Blade itself first came out. Um, so uh, we will not waste any more time. We'll get straight into the podcast after a quick advert for our writer's notebook page one and uh, then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest who is another big one and the last of the season it is the last of the season but anyway enough from us on with the podcast the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head so how to overcome that fear Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. 
What do they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, a screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. I think you started as a film editor first, is that right? Before you got I was, into um, writing. I was a video editor. Right, okay. Yeah, a TV editor, I guess. Film editor sounds very grand. <laughs> it sounds like I'm working with uh, Scorsese and uh, some of uh, you know, splicing and stuff like that. Uh, I, I worked in TV. I made tea a lot. Right. And uh, I was an assistant editor on Less Than Minimum Wage in Soho. Oh, brilliant. For a yeah. while. And then I, I worked on a lot of um, documentaries mostly, so a lot of kind of weather documentaries, you know, that, that stuff. The fastest winds on earth <laughs> are about to rip apart their trailer home. <laughs> we play a lot of that. Brilliant. And, uh, I, I did a lot of music videos, uh, well, live music, so multicam stuff, uh, concerts and awards shows, things like that. So I worked for Iron Maiden quite a bit. And, That's uh, cool. Uh, the Brit Awards for a while and, and stuff of that kind. Yeah. So that was how I began in the workplace, I guess you might say. And And while you were doing that, did you always have harbour an ambition to write stories or you know how did you how did you take that diversion yeah i mean i suppose i i was a very keen reader as a kid um and read an awful lot of fantasy and played a lot of role-playing games and was very into the whole world creation and, and so on and so i always had a lot of ideas for what i might do with a with a fantasy epic mm-hmm. i suppose i got a bit frustrated with this, the kind of commercial fantasy of the 80s and 90s, which I've read a huge amount of and loved, but started to find quite repetitive and mm-hmm. kind of predictable. And I was reading in other genres, you know, noir and westerns and, and literary and, and classics and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, started wondering why there wasn't more shocking, more character-led, more kind of interesting work being done in fantasy. Of course, there was. It's just I wasn't reading it because I had no access to fandom or to the internet mm-hmm. or any of those things hadn't happened yet so um i kind of wandered away from fantasy but i always had these ideas of, of writing fantasy myself and i had a sort of abortive effort at it when i was 20 uh, i finished my college degree and i did a psychology degree so i had no education no skills <laughs> no, no and uh, i thought i'd teach myself to touch type um and the way you know once i'd worked out roughly where the keys were I thought, man, I'm going to write my brilliant fantasy epic as a kind of training exercise, if you like. And it was really bad. 
really <laughs> cheesy, really obvious, you know, all the things I didn't really like. And so I went away and I worked as a TV editor for a while and came back to it some years later. I think, you know, I, I was lucky as an editor in that I was freelance. I might work 40 weeks in a year, in, in a busy mm-hmm. year. And so I had all this time off. Um, and I started feeling it would be good to have some valuable, worthwhile project, you know, to, to put my time into. And something that I had ownership of, because as an editor, you're a bit like a plumber. Yeah. You know, you mm-hmm. come in, but it's not your sink. Yeah. You appreciate it, yeah. but it's never your bathroom. So <laughs> I wanted to own the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. I'm stretching the metaphor slightly. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd try my hand at, at the writing thing again. And this time around, I suppose I was in my 28, 27, 28, something like that. And I just had learned to take myself and the genre altogether a lot less seriously. And it had straight away a kind of tongue-in-cheek tone to it mm-hmm. that was just much more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And so straight away, I felt like, you know, there was something worthwhile in what I was doing and, and became interested in doing it for its own sake, really, as much as anything. So the the first book that you had success with was the blade itself. Um, was that was that the first one that you wrote at that stage of you know when when you taken that you approached it? Yeah, I mean it was and it was the same one I'd written all those years ago in right. many respects. You know, it was the same characters, it was the same world, it was even the same scenes, but the voice and mm-hmm. the kind of feel of it was totally different. Um, it was partly having, you know, spent time as an editor and, and the experience of, of, of working with directors and working with, you know, script guys, good writers there. Partly I'd read Game of Thrones in the meantime and seen kind of a lot of what I felt had been missing mm-hmm. from Fantasy Express there, the character focus, the, the kind of shocking twist, the, the gritty take on the world. And partly I'd just kind of grown up a bit and, and lived life a little bit and, and sort of was just, I think, writing what I wanted to write more than what I kind of felt I was expected to write, if that makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was exactly the same book, but it was, yeah, kind of the first book I wrote, but also, you know, I'd spent, I spent quite a few years on it, maybe three or four years, um, kind of going over and over and over it before trying to find a publisher. And then what, what was the process at that point? Because am I right in saying it took about a year to get the book signed by someone? So did, did you have an agent then or did you do it solo? What, what was your path? Uh, one that I would not recommend. To <laughs> I think uh, the, the way I always put it is uh, it's like being struck by lightning, isn't it? Getting someone who's interested in your book, finding someone who's interested in your book. But the more you run around naked in the rain, the quicker lightning will strike <laughs> So uh, I, I kind of did what what the standard advice was at the time, just before email, if you can believe that. <laughs> hard to imagine a world without email. <laughs> I think they did have email, but it was like, I think our office had one account between everyone in it. <laughs> it like, the office email account. Yeah, <laughs> changed days. Um, so nothing was done by email in the book trade. You'd send off um, your uh, sample chapter or whatever it might be. You know, but what I did was I read through the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which was what was advised at the time, and found half a dozen agents who seemed to represent my kind of thing and similar authors, that sort of stuff. And, you know, rang them up and, and asked who the right person was to send it to and all the stuff you're supposed to do. And um, then you'd send off your, your little manila envelope you know, with your 
with your 50 pages in and you'd put in it a self-addressed envelope in which they could return it when they had rejected it. Yeah. <laughs> That's another world. Ultimate insult. You're not only <laughs> rejected, but you pay for them to send it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I would, I sent off maybe six of these, you know, and each one would take six weeks kind mm. of thing and send it off. You'd wait for the reply and then one day you'd come home and you'd see your own envelope yeah. on the mat and know that you had been, you know, rejected again. And, uh, <laughs> You know, it wasn't some hideous veil of sorrows that, that many writers do go through much more intense period of rejection, I'm sure. I mean, I, I got through maybe half a dozen agents, all the ones that were on the list anyway. One of them asked to see some more and then rejected it. Um, all the others just rejected it instantly and with a, a level of kind of anonymous mm-hmm. lack of feedback that was mm-hmm. quite crushing. You know, I was expecting to strike powerful emotions. <laughs> And, you know, I was expecting, no, we reject this because it's too much for us. <laughs> it's too edgy. It's too funny. You know, it doesn't suit us. Ah, oh, the market cannot take something so extreme. But no, it's more just like, you know, you get just a form rejection. Yeah. We apologize, but this pamphlet slash leaflet slash short story slash <laughs> it's not appropriate for us at this time, but may or may not be at some future time for us or someone else. Signed. <laughs> Stamp, yeah, you know? <laughs> stamp, and uh, yeah. So it was just no feedback, no idea whether it was kind of in the ballpark or not, whether it was terrible or good or uh, you know, just no idea. And uh, so I was starting to think about writing something different, something more focused and self-contained than a huge sprawling trilogy as your first project. Never seems like that great an idea, really. Um, and then a friend of mine who who was a Worked at an educational publisher at Heinemann. He um, happened to be on a desk editing course with uh, this woman, Gillian Redfern, who had started as an assistant editor at Galance, as it happens. And having found out what she did, he knew that I was doing this, and he kind of said, oh, God, <laughs> a friend of mine has written a thing in your kind of area. Would you like to look at the thing? And she's like, oh, God, oh, God, all right. I'll look at the thing. I think she was new enough that, you know, she hadn't realized how bad these things usually are. Yeah. So I was lucky. And she looked at it and I, I got an offer two weeks later. Wow. That. So, you know, lightning struck. It is, a, it is amazing. It's, we, 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 the number of people we've spoken to on this podcast mm. and how few of them have got a publishing deal in the sort of conventional way of yeah. Here's an agent who has then sold it onto a publisher. There seem to have been very lots of different routes to actually getting a publisher. Yeah. Yeah. And more than ever these days, I think, probably. Would you think now with the advent of email, etc., you know, I'm trying to think if it's easier or harder to get an agent or or like, like a publisher now, but and I'm assuming with email agents, etc., are getting so many more submissions than they were when you had to send stuff by post. Is that I mean is that a good thing or a bad thing for folk to I mean, uh, yeah, an agent will obviously have a much better idea because it's, it's, well, it's now 15 years since this was happening. It's 16 years even. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the whole world is radically different. You've got self-publishing, you know. The, the, yeah. I don't think the, the digital aspect of it makes a lot of difference because in a way the bottleneck is the attention of the, of the agent. Or That's the true. That's looking true. At it. So, yep. you know, their po- the stuff would be posted into them um, at a certain pace and you know you wouldn't get it back for six weeks because it takes them six weeks to get through that heap of 
yeah. stuff they have to yeah. ha- you know have in the slush pile at that time. So uh, I don't, I doubt that's changed hugely. I mean, I think fundamentally agents are still looking for manuscripts. Uh, there's still plenty of agents around, and publishers still want content probably more than ever, if anything. And obviously, self-publishing is a sort of parallel garden in which things are growing and flourishing and, and, you know, perhaps moving on to be published and other people are leaving publishing to self-publish. So the two are kind of mm-hmm. some give and take between the two. Yeah. So I think that's the big change in a sense. You know, at the time, the idea of self-publishing was virtually impossible. It, it would mean printing a load of paperbacks and then trying to get a rep to yeah. get yeah, book on shops. and the, the whole That whole ecosystem is kind of gone now. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Publishers barely even have kind of local reps anymore. It was such an important part of the whole book trade at that time. Now it's a, an algorithm to Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that human element has, has sort of gone out of the trade up to a point. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. But fundamentally, it's much the same. It's kind of people try to read the market and see whether the stuff they're being sent is going to sell. So it's just that individual, the, the time of the eyeballs of the agent or the reader and whether you happen across the desk of someone who likes your stuff. I think basically it's the same deal. Yeah. And, and as you said, you, the, you conceived of that as, as a trilogy. And did you say, when you sold it, did you get a three book deal at that, at that point in time? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was a big seven figure deal. I'm including the Pence columns, <laughs> uh, which is what I usually do. <laughs> makes it sound more impressive uh, and not life changing sum of money. <laughs> It was a great, you know, a, a very good deal. You know, it's a decent deal uh, for a first book and everything. But it was for a trilogy. Uh, the first one was written. The second one was kind of halfway through. And at that point, I had to actually finish a proper treatment, which I've never really done. Mm-hmm. You know, I had obviously ideas for where it was going and how it was going to finish. And I was, you know, pretty well along with that. But I never really codified it, written it down. So it was actually quite a useful exercise to have to say, OK, this is what's going to happen now. Um, and so it was halfway done and, you know, I've obviously worked with, with Gillian, who became my editor and has been my editor ever since, um, on tightening it all up and getting that first one ready. And it was maybe a year and a half, a year, year and a half till the first one came out. And by that time, I think the third one was probably halfway written. Right. So I had that luxury of kind of revising the whole thing, knowing where it was, it was going, which I think yeah. was vital. I mean, I was I was saying to Tarek actually just before he joined that um, you're quite unique almost in in, the, in a modern fantasy writer in the sense that you've been so prolific and your stories are finished. You're you know you're you're getting to the end of these things, whereas a lot. You're cursing of, me now. This is the, this is the <laughs> exactly. But I mean, the, you know, it sounds like you just accepted that I have to get these books out, you know, one a year in this trilogy. Um, and that's just what's going to happen. And that didn't scare you or, or give you any difficulty in that. I mean, I guess, you know, I was lucky in the sense that I was half a book ahead by the time the deal was signed. And mm-hmm. we knew there'd be a long period before uh, that even that first one came out. So, as I say, by the time the first one came out, the second one was well underway, it was, was finished, and the third one was well underway. Mm-hmm. And also with a trilogy, in my experience, I'm sure they all vary, um, but, you know, you get faster as you go through. So the first one where you're mm-hmm. setting up the world and the characters and kind of working out what you're doing takes much, much longer than the other two do. 
that was my experience with this recent trilogy as well. Um, so, you know, there wasn't a question about getting the first three books mm-hmm. ready to put out yearly because they were pretty much there already. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was no anticipation or expectation in the marketplace. It wasn't like there were readers screaming for yeah. the next book. <laughs> they, were there, they weren't even screaming for the first book. <laughs> they were screaming not to happen. <laughs> uh, so there, was no, there, there wasn't much sense of pressure. And, I, and I'm quite a um, workman-like kind of tunnel-visioned. I try not to think of writing as some kind of magical, magical mm-hmm. fairy exercise where, mm-hmm. you know, I sit, I, I lay on my fainting couch waiting for inspiration <laughs> to strike me. Obviously, I do have a fainting couch. But, uh, I, I've always tried to think of it as quite a banal workmanlike process where you break it down into stages and you do each stage and, you know, the, the book's made of chapters and the chapters are made of paragraphs and the paragraphs are made of words and you do one word at a time and you get there in the end. Mm-hmm. So, it was never an issue for me that with that first trilogy, with the next book, it was a bit of a problem because that was kind of my difficult second album, if you like, mm-hmm. my fourth book. It's called Best of Cold, and it was a standalone book in that same world. Mm-hmm. And I had assumed I'd just get faster and faster. I think the third book had taken me maybe 14 months to write. So the yearly thing was a bit of a cheat because I had yeah. a head start, you know. But I then had kind of the head start had more or less run out by that point, by the time the third one was published. Yeah. And so... I then had to think up something new, new characters, new stuff. And obviously, the character in the previous one had been with me for decades, in mm-hmm. a sense, stewing and developing. I didn't really realise that until I started writing a new one and they just weren't there. Yeah. You know, and these new people were unfamiliar strangers I knew nothing about and, and their voices didn't come naturally and it was like typing the gloves on. Yeah. You know, just that was when I found I had a big panic and thought, well, basically, I've written a trilogy and that's great, but now I'm screwed and I'll never write anything else. (laughs) And, you know, that feeling has kind of persisted ever since, but I've just learned that that happens every time you write a book. And uh, that's just how it feels. And so knowing that's how it feels, it feels a bit less horrible. And what's your, so what's a normal writing day for you then? You know, you've got, you've got your deadline and you've got this fear that you're not going to be able to write anything on both ends, (laughs) kind of closing in on you. And what do you do to, to smash through that? Well, deadlines are a bit of an odd one for me because generally I have been lucky. I mean, with this most recent project, there wasn't really a deadline in that sense. We kind of said, I'm going to write the whole thing first because I feel that's the only way to do the best job of a trilogy I can. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather have a break, you know, although that's obviously a bit difficult to sell to publishers and booksellers because they're always, where's the next thing, where's the next thing? And that's very much the tone of the industry really um so you know it can set you back a little to have that break but i felt it's better to do that and to have all three and then know you've got all three there and they can be prepared and published in whatever schedule suits you because we're best served cold we kind of got six months out or eight months out and realized not quite going to hit the date and another couple of months and so we moved it back a couple of months and that's a bit annoying mm-hmm. you know it's not great to kind of move it a bit near the end. It's better to know exactly when it's going to be and tell everyone when it's going to be and plan it all very carefully and give the book the best chance you possibly can. If you're going to yeah. go all the trouble of writing the bloody thing, you might as well give it the best <laughs> chance you can commercially, right? So 
with these three, it was it was more a case of you know I'll write the whole thing and then I'll I'll you know <laughs> I'll get back to you in three years <laughs> when I've written it and we can talk about publishing it. And that's more or less what happened. I mean, it was two and a half years or so, or so to get a very rough draft together. Uh, and my, my, I talk to my editor all the time anyway, and we we look at each part as I as I go. So she'd seen it all as it was going through, and a lot of editing had been done in a way already. Um, and so we then just decided what would be the best time and the best schedule to publish it, which is yearly. And so we just decided, right, each September we'll put the book out. And so that took a lot of the immediate pressure of deadline out, if you like. Yeah. Um, and I think in general, that's how I've tried to write. I mean, with the previous set of books, Half a King, Shattered Sea books, the first of which was Half a King, I wrote that book first right. and then sold it after. So, I mean, obviously, it's a, you're in a luxurious position if you can afford to do that. Um, but it's better if you can, I find, because uh, it's also easier to sell a finished thing than to kind of sell the house off plan, if you yeah, will. Yeah. You want to be able to show the people around, see how the light falls on the castle. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't want to just say, well, it'll be great, believe me, it'll be great. It'll be great. <laughs> oh, the greatest house ever, yeah. The greatest house ever, exactly. But so, I mean, typical writing day, I suppose it depends on what phase of the project you're in, because I, I do a lot of revising and, and going over and editing. Mm-hmm. So... Half the work to kind of the first draft, I guess you might say. And for that, I'm generally trying to do four or five hours a day, maybe less. I mean, I aim at kind of 1,500 to 2,000 words in a day. That's a good day. And at the start of these last three books, I was doing kind of 1,000 to 2,000 a day. Towards the end, I was getting up to maybe 15,000 a week. I was really rolling along. And I wrote the... The second two books in a very rough and shabby manner, <laughs> but in a, in a year, the both of them took about a year between the two, which is very well, that's, that's very fast. They, yeah, they need a lot of work after that. They needed at least as much again to kind of get them. But but the bones of the of the book were there typically to work. For yeah, and there, there was yeah. a draft. Yeah. yeah, there was a bad draft, uh, <laughs> and the bad drafts aren't that bad. They're actually probably three quarters the same as the finished thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I really just cut down a lot and rewrite and rethink. So I added a few scenes here and there as well, but generally it stayed reasonably close. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you can. the thing is, if you sit and type, if you're typing something that's written down, you can type at a stupendous speed. The typing is not the bottleneck. <laughs> yeah. It's the kind of just the effort. The mental thinking, yeah. Attention. I find I can't do more than three or four hours in a day. Is yeah. is not. I'll, I'll be pretty battered after that. And um, do you do you like on the, in the next day? Do you go back and look over what you wrote the day before and then revise that as you go, or do you just sort of try and push through to the I end? I used to. Right. So with my first book, that's exactly what I did, and, and I'd be constantly going over and over things. So I'd write a paragraph. I'd read over it, I'd, I'd shuffle it all around, mm-hmm. reorder it, cut it down, rethink it, you know, think about the voice of the character and redo it. And then I'd move on to the next paragraph and I'd do that one. Then I'd go back to the first one. Yeah. And every day I'd reread what I'd done the previous day. And I think that was all, you know, partly the experience of being an editor. You, you, that's what you do. You go over and over stuff and mm-hmm. assemble things, mm-hmm. and then you chop them down, reorder, they reorganize. So it's a real process of whittling down and rethinking constantly. So I kind of naturally started to write the same way. And that was important in sort of working out how it worked and 
what my style was if I've got one, and you know how the whole thing works. Um, but it's not very efficient, is what I discovered. And so over time, more and more, I just smash out a, a first draft without worrying too much. Sometimes I even leave holes in it, which is mm. very bad form. But it just can't be asked. <laughs> describing stuff, you know. I'm great on dialogue and I'm fine on action and those, that kind of uh-huh. thing is reasonably natural to me. But then I, yeah, I do loads of dialogue and I end up with these holes in between where you've got to say what's going on and describe <laughs> You just put like a placeholder or not even bother, just jump forward. <laughs> Sometimes I do. Write a little message to future Joe. Well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sort this bit, really lavish description of a canal. <laughs> great. And then move on. Um, but I think in a way I've learned that if you smash through to the end of a draft, then you obviously then know what you've got and what you're doing and where you've gone wrong and where you've gone right. And you can apply that knowledge much mm-hmm. more efficiently than when you sort of do rounds of revision that are a bit more focused. Yeah. So, uh, I tend to just smash through a first draft and then when I've got a part, I split books in at parts. This trilogy was nine parts altogether. And so... I sort of thought about it as nine parts, and when I finished one, I'd, I'd revise that and sort of see where I was and probably cut a lot out and, you know, revise and rethink a bit. Um, and also, I'd then have ideas of, okay, well, I've gone a bit wrong with that character. They need to be a bit more selfish or they need to be a bit more mm-hmm. unselfish or whatever it might be. You build, you steadily build up ideas of, of what's worked and what hasn't so that when you tackle the next part, you're a bit more informed. And that's kind of the process I've worked out over time. So it almost sounds like when you're when you're writing a trilogy, do you almost kind of write one massive book then, and then then work out which parts will go in which book, and how many parts should be in each book, and how you'll split it up almost once you've kind of done the whole thing. I mean, it depends a bit. So the, the Shattered Sea books were linked single books, really, mm-hmm. with different characters, and so I re- I did just write them as three individual books, although I had some ideas of threads that had run through. Yeah. Um, this latest trilogy I did write really as one big thing, although it was kind of on my mind that it was three parts, three acts, and so you do want some kind of threads that, you want some closure and some sense mm-hmm. of arcs within each of those yeah. parts, which is kind of a, a lesson I learned from my first trilogy where the first book really is just a meandering kind of mess. It's brilliantly <laughs> written, <laughs> of course, wonderful characters. But a mess. <laughs> From a narrative standpoint, it has no closure. It, it doesn't really do anything. It, it just it sets everything up and makes no effort to really close anything off. And, and some readers bounce off that. So I think I've got a bit better at kind of giving each each book its own structure. So you're kind of designing the thing with a bit of ebb and flow to it. Mm-hmm. But certainly, I wanted to write the whole thing in one block because what I didn't yeah. want to do is get to the end of the third book and think I really need to change the start for this. Yeah. Game. I've always thought that must be quite a hard thing when you if, if you do it in step by step to get to be exactly get to get to book three and think oh crap I've I've, I've, I've changed, changed book one but it's too late now and I've ripped myself into this corner where I can't get out of well exactly which is what I didn't want to didn't yeah. want to do and you're bound to have those those feelings I mean I'm I'm quite into shapes and patterns and circles and the end repeating the beginning and fancy mm-hmm. things of that kind mm-hmm. uh, I mean I write about magic swords but still I can do it in a clever way <laughs> so I thought. So I had to really write the end before going back to the start. And my experience with standalone writing standalone books was that it, often it wasn't until I got to the end that I'd even really know what characters needed to be like. Mm-hmm. And so 
the experience there, I mean, with Better of Cold, particularly the one that I found very difficult, you know, I was thinking this is terrible, this is rubbish, it makes no sense. And then I got to the end, and as I was getting to the end, I started to think, okay, hold on. I think I know what I've got to do now to make it work at the start. Yeah. So I think with a big trilogy, I had the same feeling. It's like, where are the characters going to end up? Because until you know where they're ending up, you, you don't know where they need to start, who they need yeah. to be. You know, yeah. it's all about kind of calibrating how they are throughout the, the story so it all makes sense. So in this case, yeah, it was conceived of and, and written as as one block, but in, in three acts, I suppose. And and this latest trilogy, which is the Age of Madness trilogy, um, uh, the second one, the, the Trouble with Peace has just come out, but one thing that struck me as I read it is that it's, it, it's taking, it seems to be taking themes that are actually very current, but putting them in a fantasy setting. So the, the idea of sort of industrialization, um, of, of that world and people losing jobs and all that sort of stuff, mm. which is obviously a parallel with, with what is happening now in terms of AI and things like that. Um, you know, when you write stories like that, are you wanting to, to do more than just tell a story, I suppose, you know, you, you're wanting to bring in some stuff like that. I write about magic swords as a metaphor for the depth of the universe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, well, I try not to, I don't know, it depends with every book. I, I try not to kind of make theme the first thing, if that makes sense, I suppose. <laughs> you know, uh, I focus mostly on character and story. So what I'll be working out first is uh, thinking about first is who are the people in it, who are the characters and, and what's the overall action and, and what's going on in the world and how all the stories of the characters kind of knit into that, if you like. So it's about story first and character. And then, you know, theme, obviously, your hope develops as you go. And sometimes that's kind of natural and obvious within the context. So the heroes is a, is a war story, but it's about heroism. Is it possible? Is it real? Mm. What is it? You know, who are heroes and who are villains? Is it, is it being a very successful killer? Does that make you a hero? Is it doing the right thing even when it's difficult? Is it, you know, having the right motives even when you do the wrong thing? You know, mm. so it was all about, it became a sort of investigation of what is heroism within the context of a war story, which I guess is a very classic thing for a war story to do. With these books, I think The Age of Madness, naturally, the the sort of political upheaval of recent times just finds its way in there. I mean, in the first books, in the first law, um, they were written between 2001 and 2005, I guess, 2006, and the third book came out in 2008 in the global financial crisis. And, of course, the, the villain is an evil banker. Time profit. <laughs> Suspicious. Absolutely. What did you know yeah. that everyone else didn't, Joe? Well, I guess, you know, it's just it's an instinctive thing. I just tap into the zeitgeist, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, so with these new books, you know, it, it became about politics a little bit and the, and the kind of crazy political period we're going through and have been going through for a while. But also, you don't necessarily want to make them the absolute focus of what you're doing because I think people get a bit bored of, of totally obvious allegory, you know? Yeah. Um, so hopefully they've got something to say, but as a secondary to the Magic Sword stuff. And there also there's a lot of humour in the books, which is kind of unusual, I think, for a genre which is often takes itself very seriously. And is that something that's important to you, to bring that humour into it that you don't really get in, say, Game of Thrones? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, I think it is. Um, I suppose, you know, after the fact... 
when people have read your stuff and it's been out a long time and you've kind of read every reaction under the sun, more or less, at one time or another, people start to say similar things and then you start to think, yeah, you know, that is what I was doing. I was <laughs> deconstructing Intentionally, strokes, you know. I was trying to write a pretty yet humorous take on the classics and fantasy. And you start thinking that that was a, a master plan. And it wasn't really. It was just kind of what happened when I put pen to paper. And you know, the first the first version I was talking about that um, I wrote when I was twenty was quite pompous mm. and ponderous and kind of taking itself seriously. And I think in an early scene, uh, the hero tears his bare skin from his chest and steps into a waterfall and swashes. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and then in the, in the kind of more modern version, he, he he kind of stumbles in, he falls over, and he cuts his head, and it's all a, a big mess, you know. And I suppose that was the, what had changed in between. You know, I I just found that I had this tongue-in-cheek attitude to it, mm-hmm. both serious and and not serious. I suppose it's just like the the humour of how people are in a way, and and when people talk to each other, what emerges. Um, so it's not trying to be funny. I guess fantasy, you know, tended to imitate Tolkien a lot in the 80s. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, you know, ma- magnificent though he is in many ways, he's not really a humorist, I think, let's <laughs> say. You know, um, it's not what he was going for. But in imitating him and his mythic weight, you know, a lot of fantasy became quite ponderous and pompous yeah. and mm-hmm. self seriously while being quite silly at the yeah. same time. Or it was out and out slapstick, you know, of the board of the rings. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I kind of wanted to do something that was, you know, serious but had a bit of a bit of wit in it, I guess. And it's just what emerged when I was writing and, and what felt, you know, good and an interesting tone to me. Um, I suppose I was just writing how how it felt natural and how I wanted to read and writing what occurred to me at the time and a lot of that was quite ridiculous in one way or another. <laughs> And w- when you're writing a fantasy novel, I suppose it's like a sci-fi novel as well. You know, when you're when you're creating a whole world, um, you know, it, the, it's quite it can be challenging not to just sort of do an exposition dump of here's what the world's like, here's here's what the oh, yeah. kingdom's been like for five hundred years, and you know how how do you does it come naturally to you just to try and just drop these pieces of information in, or is that sometimes a struggle? Do you think, how am I going to explain what this is here? As you know, Zarkwon, this is the Magic Valley. <laughs> yes, exactly. Zarkwon defeated the orcs in the year 1526. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it is a problem, and the kind of, uh, you know, I think my first book, certainly, there's, there's a lot of thumbprints of kind of trying to, set stuff up Mm -hmm. but I I think even from right at that point I was quite into the whole notion of you know launching in media res and and kind of uh, only describing stuff I think probably just instinctively without really thinking about it 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 was to the characters who are naturally in their habitat you know it's not they don't describe it I mean when you wake up in your own room you don't go ah here I am waking up and all my ceiling's white and oh there's my cupboard and you know oh here's (laughs) There's the six different toothbrushes in the toothbrush. That's the one I use for holidays, and that's my electric one. You know, you don't think like that. You just sleepwalk yeah. through it. But if you wake up and you're in an unfamiliar room, then it's all leaping at you. Yeah. So, you know, the experience of that would be very different. So I suppose, you know, I, I naturally ended up 
just not really setting things up mostly for the characters when they're in their natural surroundings but when they're moved out of their natural surroundings and become a fish out of water that's when you know you, you get a much more interesting reaction to what's around them and the opportunity to describe it in a in a slightly different way so i tried to avoid too much of that and i think generally speaking you know world building is not my thing mm-hmm. if i've got a thing you know i'm less interested in that and if it's a case of you know the effort put into getting my list of kings just so and effort put into making a scene pop then there's no contest yeah. as far as i'm concerned because yeah. um, in the end the world building is just just the sets and you know no one ever went to a play and said well it, the acting was poor and the direction was poor and the script was terrible, but man, those sets were stupendous. <laughs> so five out of five. <laughs> you know, they don't really do that. It's it, the sets are, are never the thing. So I think people get naturally, you know, the thing that separates fantasy from other stuff or epic fantasy from other stuff is is the magic and the the world and the secondary world and the, the magical towers and big ships or whatever it might be, but. I'm more interested in the stuff it has in common with everything else, mm-hmm. you know, the characterization and the humor and the action and the plotting and those things. So uh, I always wanted the world to feel secondary and perhaps, uh, you know, lightly brushed, lightly sketched in, let's say, you know, using a lot of real world analogs that, that make you lifting light and easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this place sounds like it's got an Italian name, so now I'm thinking Italian. That yeah. kind of very yeah. sophisticated. Because there's there's a lot of fantasy books you get, and it's you know there's like maps at the start, there's family trees that go on for pages and pages, and you do find yourself some. Oh, I find myself at the start, I'll go back and I'll, well, that's so and so's son, right? Okay, and then after about you know three or three three or four chapters, you think I can't be arsed, I'm just going to leave it, and you mm-hmm. and, and you can't keep track anymore, and you can't, and and so I think I can see the benefit of just avoiding that entirely, just saying you know what, you'll know enough that you, to, that you need to know. To go on with the story, and, and and we're not going to drop you in the middle of this massive family. Then you need to learn everyone's name and everyone's place mm. and where the people are living in relation to someone else, etc. So, so yeah, that, that that doesn't make a lot of sense. The map's a classic one, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, I I would happily have put a map in had had the publisher wanted one, but the guy who was running the imprint at the time, Simon Spanson, he he just wasn't into maps particularly just felt like it was something people stuck at the front of a book just as a way to say this is that kind of book you like <laughs> with the map yeah yeah exactly and it should work without it and i don't know I, I guess i felt that i wanted to tell a story that was very much focused on the characters mm-hmm. and character centered and put you in the heads of the characters in the way that things like la confidential and and stuff that i'd read did and the map was the opposite. You know, if I wanted to tell a story in tight close-up and not be about the big mountains and the big setting, then a kind of wide shot of the entire world is the very first thing you come to. It seemed like exactly the wrong message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Apart from which, with a the map, there's always those blank bits that you've not really thought about. <laughs> you know, that you then have to... What do you do? Do you leave them blank or do you have to fill them in now with unconvincing stuff you've just thought <laughs> upon the spot? Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Think damn, I wanted that river's totally the wrong shape now. There's <laughs> an obstacle, so it suited me to just leave the maps out in in many ways. And then, of course, I broke my own rule and had loads of maps in the next book. Cover, <laughs> but and 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 but as you write more and more stories in in that world as well, it, it becomes it becomes a bigger and bigger thing, obviously. And the more and more characters. I mean, are they all just in your head, and you don't, or do you have a 
a, a document where you've got everyone noted down and who they are, or is it just kept in your head? It's mostly in my head. I mean, I've got I've got a timeline of, of sort of um, I've got some historical timelines of various countries, and I do I do actually have a list of kings and reigns of various <laughs> kinds. I will admit. Um, though I try not to mention it very often either in the book or outside of it. And I've got maps because you kind of have to have maps for, in order to give a sense the world's concrete and then it makes sense. Especially when you're writing something like The Battle in the Heroes, because everyone's in the same valley over quite a concentrated period of time, the geography becomes quite important in planning how it's all going to work. Um, but generally, I don't have kind of big lists of characters and things, partly because it's so complicated. I don't know what list you'd have yeah. that kind of mm-hmm. makes any sense. Because yeah. where I tend to make mistakes that then have to be corrected later is things like relationships between characters. I forget that they knew mm-hmm. each other or that they had that particular conversation or they ran into each other that time. And so I don't know what form you'd keep that information where you'd be made aware of that naturally. Yeah. You know, the only way I've discovered to do it is just to read them all. Mm-hmm. So when I finished the first draft, one thing that I did in getting to a second draft was I read everything and read, read the other six books and the short stories just to make sure I hadn't missed anything or, you know, got something wrong or mm-hmm. I have on occasion got things wrong in a draft I've later corrected. So just reading them afterwards is the, the main thing I do really. Obviously mm-hmm. as the, the, the more books there are, the more, yeah, weighted stuff there is, but luckily people die, and you get new generations. You don't have to worry about all the dead ones. And also, you surely now fans are putting stuff up on Wikipedia, so you can go and just look. You could reference that <laughs> you can't instead. Trust, you can't trust them to get it right. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, no, you can't trust those guys. Well, I mean, I mean, how are the fans? Do you, do you, do you find the fans that you know when you if you ever meet them or chat to them and stuff? Are they are they quite nice? Because I think especially now he's not going to say no to too. that, is he? No, I know. Fans are the most <laughs> yeah, lovely people I've ever met. Yeah, <laughs> but you do kind of get that toxic element to fandom, which you've seen Star Wars, Game of Thrones, etc. And is that something you've ever encountered yourself? Well, I don't really like the word fans because you know my readers are drawn to me through because <laughs> of a, a, a high intellectual, of course, level, sorry, of course, you know, not, not some kind of unreasoning adoration for a, a, a meaningless property, meaningless IP. You know, they're they're intellectuals, man. Um, I don't know. They're, yeah, they're, they're generally they're really good. I suppose it's too small a thing to have that level. There's a, there's a kind of perhaps a, a critical mass level where fandom starts to any given fandom begins to eat itself to a degree, mm-hmm. and you get all yeah. splinters within it, and people who who love one book and hate another book and despise the way the author's gone, you know, all that stuff has only really happened to me in miniature. I mean. There's, say, there's a Reddit, a subreddit on Reddit for the first all that has kind of eight, eight thousand subscribers. I mean, there's other books that have hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it's not huge, but it's big enough that, you know, people can really dislike stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, it doesn't have to be that big for that to happen. Do you tend to go in and read it or do you? Yeah, I, I stop by from time to time. Yeah. What people are saying. I think it's kind of important to know how people react to things because it's part of the process of, the post-mortem of a book and, and asking yourself whether it was, it was successful, mm-hmm. what worked, what didn't. Not to say that you're slavishly when someone says, I hate that character, you think, oh no, I must never write that character yeah. again. Yeah. I must text them all out of my author copy. <laughs> you know, you, you just, but, but 
sometimes things that readers say kind of you agree with and you think, yeah, maybe I could have done that better. Mm-hmm. That's something to think about next time. So it's all part of the process, the reading reviews and reading what people say. And generally, you know, they're... One thing I'm quite pleased with is no one tends to agree on which is my best book. They tend uh, there's quite mm-hmm. a good spread of opinion on which ones yeah. they like and which they don't. Um, and there's always people who, you know, the, the thing you learn quite early on is that you'll just hear every opinion. Imagine yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Kind of blows your mind. When I was young, I thought, yeah, we all pay lip service to the notion that everything's subjective. But there is actually objective truth, and it's basically my opinion. <laughs> that, that was what I, I genuinely felt. That you know, yeah, you you like such and such, but you're wrong because it's shit, and, and I know better. But when you publish something yourself, you do realise actually what is black to one person is white to another. You yeah. know, it's yeah. just no agreement on what is funny, what is effective plotting, what's a good ending, what's a bad ending. You'll literally get people. Often now it happens. The more books you write, the more it happens probably. But people will say next to each other, you're looking on Goodreads at the reviews, you know, yeah. and next to each other will be one saying, and without a doubt, undeniably his best book so far. <laughs> and the next one will be, well, I mean, it's his worst book. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I don't know, you've got to take it all with a pinch of salt. I, think. I yeah. mean, but the, 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 the internet is... Has... Sorry, go on. So, sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, the internet has, has served as a as a you know, it, it's surely made that whole thing worse. Suddenly everyone thinks their opinion is the most important and wants to tell everyone about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the internet has just meant that everyone now can voice their opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, opinion is not in short supply. We may be running short of some things, but opinion will never <laughs> be one of them. And, you know, they're just everyone has equal weight to their opinion as well often, so... Mm-hmm. It's hard to filter out the noise and yeah. sort of think about what might or might not be an important opinion and what might not be. Yeah, it has changed, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I came up at a time before Twitter and before you know there were chat rooms, maybe just starting off, but they were pretty niche. Mm-hmm. So you didn't get this kind of instant onslaught of opinion about books that can quite quickly turn and become very unpleasant i think to be a new author in this yeah. climate would be really quite worrying not you know i'm sure yours will be great supremely <laughs> <laughs> well but uh you know i think it it's a different it's a different time where it can be worrying in having that kind of you know onslaught of opinion potentially yeah absolutely um i'm established enough now that you know if that happened i'd probably just you know it would be unpleasant, but I'd get over yeah. it and damage yeah. me significantly. But it certainly is a bit of a worrying time for people making content of one kind or another. Well, well a lot you... of very dug in kind of political positions yeah. that make yeah. very hard. I mean, Absolutely. with the Age of Madness, I was never, I was expecting some people might or might not like certain elements of, of its message or its politics or whatever. Mm-hmm. I did not anticipate the pro-children down coal mines lobby. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a real people who are literally, you're being unpleasant about capitalism. And I thought like red in tooth and claw Victorian capitalism, mm-hmm. orphans down chimneys and that, was not a tough no. target. That seemed like low hanging fruit to me. <laughs> no, there are people who are very, very annoyed that you might criticise capitalism. And all that yeah. 
I mean, you you just find people. You just find as as you say, every opinion is out there, and they will make themselves heard. So it's you can't avoid it now, I suppose, can you? No, I suppose, you know the thing is, I suppose you can avoid it in a way. Well, as you can, you still have to you still engage with this, but at all, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is though, if you're very well established, if you're George R. R. Martin or whatever, mm-hmm. let's face it, you can just turn it off and make no difference, really. Yeah, your your books will sell. You don't need to go out there and make an effort on your own yeah. back. Yeah. I mean, a lot of us want to be because we love to kind of... It's, it's like hearing someone talking about you through an open door, isn't it? You've just got to hear what's yeah. said. Yeah, and you hope it's you hope it's something nice. Yeah, yeah, and, and most of us, you know, feel like we've got to be out there because, you know, having a, a Twitter presence or whatever it may be is kind of seen as something that's important in marketing a book these days. So, yeah. you know, most of us don't feel that's something we can, we can avoid, but probably you could. It's not as important as we think it is. And it can get like it can start to feel like the whole world is Twitter, mm-hmm. and I mean it's not. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's a so very specific sampling, and the most extreme viewpoints are massively amplified, massively yeah. amplified. So you know the, the the quiet majority don't have much to say, and when they do, no one's interested in listening because it's not exciting. <laughs> they want to hear people who are massively excited about things, or ma- even better, who hate them and are furious about it. <laughs> So that's one of the downsides is that we love controversy and hatred and fury. And whenever anyone's being horrible about a book, I can't, like, oh, which book, which book, which author? Like, okay. <laughs> is it me? Is it me? So that, you know, it is for some reason gripping hearing people be horribly unpleasant about things. I don't know why. It's, it's a, a real unfortunate part of the human cognition, yeah. I think. Yeah. And, and would you want to see the world of the first law transferred into other mediums like a game or film and tv or things like that i mean are you asking whether i would like for instance to have my books adapted into a massively successful multimedia franchise netting me millions if not billions of dollars and the love and admiration of the world's entire population. Uh, no, yeah. I'm not bothered. Or you could have, or you <laughs> could have a really badly made adaption, which you know everyone hates and well, that's turns people off your books entirely. No one thinks of those ones <laughs> cancelled after half a season. Exactly. I suppose. Yeah, it would be it would be lovely to to see, and you know, things have happened, things on go on, and you know, I think Game of Thrones has obviously had a big impact and, and meant there's a lot of people looking for similar content and have been for a while. Mm-hmm. So most people writing in that wheelhouse have had some interest at some time or another. And as you say, I think it'd be great to have a, a brilliant adaptation, probably disappointing and sad to have a really terrible one. Yeah. Um, but then you can't, you can't, you've got to take the chance because you yeah, don't know absolutely. what it's going to be like until later. And if it's crap, well, that's their fault. That's not you. You hand them gold, and they turned it into <laughs> well, exactly. And that's what the authors love. There's always a panel of authors, isn't there? Yeah. The kind of how you shat on my book <laughs> panel. Exactly. Yeah. Good thing. <laughs> out there, they pay me thousands of pounds and do my book sales, and yeah, you know, that was Turkey. And I got snubbed at the party. Michael Caine wouldn't talk to me or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to be on that panel. Well, would you want to write it yourself? Would you ever want to write a TV script yourself or adapt your book or write something for film? Show them how it's done. Um, I may or may not have done some of that now and again. Ah. And it may or may not ever have been filmed. But it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I, I would. I mean, the thing is, it's littered with frustrations whichever way you go, I think. If you 
if you sell all the rights and step away, there's a sort of purity to that. But it's got to be a bit disappointing seeing them kind of mess it up. Yeah. But if you decide to get deeply involved yourself, then it's just a kind of ongoing onslaught of compromises. And, you know, it's a very different to working on a book where, you know, you are as close to the boss as you're ever going to get in any business, really. Yeah. Um, you have more or less total creative control as, a, as an author, generally. Not over every aspect of the book, not necessarily over the cover or the way it's marketed or mm-hmm. so on, but over the words and the internals, you're basically in charge, more or yeah. less. Um, and clearly with a, with TV or film, you just, it's a massive ensemble piece and you have big vested interests who want things their way and you have a much bigger, broader audience you've got cater to as well. Mm-hmm. Now, if a book sells 100,000 copies, it's a, it's a massive success. If a film sells 100,000 tickets, it's an absolute disaster. Yeah. yeah so, you yeah. know, you can't <clears throat> appeal to a niche in quite the same way. You have yeah. to have some of that, you know, focus grouping and demographics and all that stuff, you know, you, you, you don't have the luxury of artistic purity if you have a handy. Yeah. Uh, well, I know the, I can't remember now his name, but the guy that sold the, the Witcher, um, uh, books to, but as, as the game. Sapkowski. He, yeah, Sapkowski. He, yeah. um, I think he didn't like the direction that the games have gone, but those have been massively, massively successful and have managed to sell him Loads, loads, and loads of copies of his books as a result of it. Mm. So, uh, yeah. even if even if the adaptation isn't exactly what you had, it can do you yeah. a lot of a lot of good. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, it, it probably always gives you some sort of, of bump of interest, even if it's just an announcement saying, "Oh, I sold the rights," and isn't it exciting? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, it definitely creates some interest, and but many sort of sync without massive trace as well so it's not always the kind of huge thing that game of thrones or harry potter is yeah. you know often mm-hmm. it's just something that goes on but it feels as though it's a big badge of honor within the industry you know oh that person had their thing adapted ooh, yeah no, yep. now we can take them seriously and naturally you know when you're talking to people who don't have anything to do with books they'll always be like oh have you had anything no (laughs) (laughs) and um, you've got the wisdom of crowds out next year Mm. and that's the final book in the trilogy and then what's the plan for after that well the horrible thing isn't it about being a writer is there's always another book to write I mean that's the problem as I realised when I was writing you know my third book and my editor suddenly said to me what are you doing next I just never thought about next yeah. horrifying epiphany that I might have to write dozens of books. <laughs> and ever since then, it's been, you know, just waking One up. One book after another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there'll be something else, I expect. Probably non-first law related because uh, it's good to... I, I'll almost certainly come back to that world, I think, God willing. But um, it's nice to try other things and, mm-hmm. and try varied stuff. And obviously, I had a, had a stab at young adult with the Shattered Sea thing, mm-hmm. so I might have a stab at going more adult than ever. <laughs> Erotica? Well, you know, just onslaught of sex and violence. <laughs> Almost certainly. That's, that's my thinking. How far can I push it? <laughs> I, I did get an email from a guy who um, said he very much enjoyed the heroes, but unfortunately he then had to burn it. Because <laughs> he was concerned it would fall into the hands of his prayer group and corrupt them. Oh, <laughs> I want to see if I can take them down that particular path. 
Excellent. Oh, <laughs> what is the last book that you read? Funnily enough, the last book I read was Sapkowski. No, oh, okay. Power of Fools. He's got. You see, they say he's got a new book out, but actually it was written 20 years ago. Oh, okay. But it was never translated. It's been translated. <laughs> yeah, so it's just been translated. It's very good, actually, I, I think. Um, I mean, it's 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 sort of, a niche is probably the wrong word, but it's kind of, I'm not sure it'll, it'll be everyone's cup of tea. It's set in the Hussite Wars, so it's 15th, 16th century Bohemia, um, and it's kind of very much soaked in that period and full of weird Latin and, and kind of the vagaries of the Catholic Church. Um, and what about the last film that you watched? The last film I watched? It's funny, I, so much of what I watch these days is TV. I'm, try, I'm having a hard time remembering what... No, I know what it was. It was The Karate Kid. <laughs> oh, we were just chatting about that earlier on today. Yeah, yeah. Have you been uh, watching the TV show? Yeah, exactly. It's Cooper Kai. Yeah, thought that would be a great thing to watch with the kids. So we, we managed to twist their arms into watching the Karate Kid, and they loved it. And I actually yeah, it. yeah, we, we watched it of... um, two weeks ago to get to get back into. It. And I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, and it still I still loved it. It still holds yeah. up. Cheesy yeah, nonsense, but it's great. It's really good. It's a bit, it's, it's a bit kind of harder edged than I uh, remembered it. And Cobra Kai is just such a brilliant. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. The the one thing about Karate Kid, I, I said this to you, Tarek, was that. When you watch it again now, you forget what a little shit Daniel was quite a lot of the time. Mm. <laughs> he had yeah. quite a lot of it coming. <laughs> yeah. They're often a lot more complicated than you remember those 80s films. Yeah. And, you know, they just were a bit less inhibited, maybe, you know, in, yeah. in, 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 in did. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's just such an ingenious concept, what they've done with it, what they've done bringing it back 35 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's excellent. Oh yeah, and uh, last one is uh, what was the last TV show that you've been watching? Well, Cobra Kai, and also uh, I've been watching um, Community, funnily enough, which I never <laughs> caught at the time. Sometimes it's nice to have one of those kind of comedy shows with fifteen thousand episodes yeah. that you know you missed at the time, and, and I've, I've been really enjoying that actually. I think it's great, and also the boys. Oh yeah, that's awesome. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I've got one episode of that still to watch, but. Uh, it's also very good, and, and I just think uh, Anthony Starr playing Homelander is just absolutely... He's the best thing. He's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's superb. Yeah. Funny enough, I'd watched Banshee not long before, um, which I'd never watched at the time. Mm. And I'd watched all that. I think I might have watched the first season of The Boys, then I watched all that, and then I watched the second season. And only in like, the last episode, I think this guy's so familiar. Is he the main guy in Banshee? He's the main guy in Banshee. Oh, I've never seen Banshee, but I've seen trailers for it and stuff. I've... He seems, I mean, he's totally different. And totally unrecognisable. Yeah. Unrecognisable. It's such a great performance, Homelander. Oh, it's, oh. It's horrible, it it's small, it's mean, but it's it's also very human and kind of the combination of that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and no responsibility whatsoever. Mm, yeah. You know, just yeah. the, the smallness and the meanness, but brilliant. Brilliant, a detailed, observed little performance. I think it's great. Um the last thing we do is an either or and Tarek will tell you that uh, there are no right answers apart from to one of the questions um, <laughs> uh, so uh, the first one I'll go for is uh, George R.R. R. Martin or J.R.R. Tolkien well Tolkien can't give me no blurb so Martin all the way <laughs> <laughs> uh, wise move um, and then well this won't be quite the same but uh, Game of Thrones or The Witcher 
Oh, I do like both. I think Game of Thrones for me is a kind of foundational influence. In You're really plugging that blurb from Martin. I know. I do really love The Witcher, though. It's a, you know, oh, tough. Um, TV or cinema? I like both, but lately TV. Yeah. Uh, real book or ebook? Generally real, but it's kind of. It's all about it's just a delivery mechanism, isn't it? It uh, is indeed. Yeah, the ebook has its place and time for travel and for fitting books on a yeah. device. So why not both? But if you really, if you really had to come down on one side or the other, real book, because you know oh. I like a big shelf. Tarek, that was stupid. You pushed it exactly. That's the one that always gets Tarek annoyed. <laughs> I should just take taken the half point and just left it there. Yeah. But I mean, people buy both, so I'm good with it. That was foolish, Tarek. You Why? should not have pushed him. Why did I push him? <laughs> I should have just taken the half point. <laughs> that was that was a mistake, a big mistake. And actually, have you seen this week? There's there's another reason that that real books should always win out over ebooks because. Amazon are arguing in America that, that. that uh, you don't actually ever own these things that you quote it's, buy it's off them. Really interesting. Uh, there's, I, I don't agree with that at all. Like, I, I totally get if you're buying a digital content or a film or a book or whatever, you don't own a physical version of it. But I feel it's disingenuous to say to call it a buy option. Mm-hmm. You're not actually. You're just kind of. It's like an indefinite hire until they decide that you can't have yeah. it anymore. Essentially, yeah, it's, uh, it makes me a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. So, so are you going to I... come over to Real Books? Then? <laughs> it's too it's too early for that. <laughs> I'm I'm dug in this hill. I can't I can't get out. We'll we'll pull you over. We'll pull you over. <laughs> um, but I, I thought that was a great chat with Joe. Um, he had a lot of uh, funny and interesting things to say there. You know, I thought it was interesting actually. We talked at the start about how he is one of these fantasy writers that actually finishes the the, the stories that he's telling, <laughs> um, and he writes them all as one block, you know, these big trilogies. Yeah. But he chooses to write the whole story, which makes sense when you think about it. Because as you said, if you get to book three, what is what is what is meant to be book three, and you suddenly realise you need to change something, you'd have to go all the way back to book one and. Yeah. make the changes fall, flow through the whole thing so it, it would be quite difficult that, I think I mean, it's do. a massive undertaking though when you think if you're you know fantasy books are quite big to start with so to think of it in one massive block you need mm-hmm. to be pretty pretty dedicated and to be able to push through that because I imagine you, you know everyone has those points when they're writing a book where you have that self-doubt etc but that must just be magnified mm-hmm. tenfold when you're writing it in a in a one or like that but yeah I suppose maybe that does help with them putting the books out once a year you know yeah. as we said at the start how many authors don't don't get, have anywhere near though that many books especially fantasy authors yeah. so it is, it's impressive no that's right and I also I thought it was interesting what you were saying about you know theme because I think you know maybe I'm I'm looking at the wrong sources and stuff but to me you've always got people saying science fiction is an allegory for something and science fiction can be used as a way to tell uh, as a commentary on current issues and things like that but it's not something that is so often thought of in relation to fantasy you know that's a good point and and you know his books definitely do the the age of madness trilogy is very much about sort of industrialization and 
politics and things like that you know that, that is very current really a lot of it yeah um, but in this fantasy setting so it, it's yeah it, it's i think that maybe is something that can be dismissed when people talk about fantasy sometimes. Yeah, I think that that's actually a really good point. It's something I hadn't thought before. Why is it that science fiction, you know, I think science fiction, fantasy, they're both genres that are unfairly sidelined as we chat mm-hmm. next week. Yes, indeed. But of the two, I think science fiction does get a pass at being viewed at with with these eyes of it's telling a story of a, of. Yeah, time it, in a exactly. It's a, it's a piece of commentary more, as well exactly. as just a story. Yeah, yeah. You don't get that with fantasy. I don't, I don't know why that is. No, that's right. In the wider public, I think there is this sort of thought of fantasy simply as Lord of the Rings. You know, it kind of yeah. just gets put Absolutely. into that cat- that yeah. one little box, and now Game of Thrones, of course, as well. But yeah, wherever big product. Is yeah, but time, it, yeah. It, it's so much wider, and it can tell so many different stories. And if you haven't read Joe's books, um. I would highly recommend them because they are great stories. They have really, really great characters, quite uh, broken characters in a lot of yeah. ways, but, but yeah. you know, really interesting characters. And they do have this wider commentary aspect to them as well. So um, I really appreciate Joe taking the time to come on the podcast. We really enjoyed chatting with him. Absolutely. Um, and next week, we've got another great guest. We do. Next week, we're chatting with Daniel Abraham, who is... One half of James S.A. Corey, who is, of course, the uh, pen name for the author behind the Expanse trilogies, mm. who made into a very successful Not trilogies, series. Trilo- there's a trilogy series, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Seven books, seven or eight books Nine. Now. It will be nine, nine at the I end of it. Yeah. About. I should stop drinking and recording. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's a, it was obviously made into a very successful TV show, and Daniel's also done a number of fantasy books himself as well. Yeah, so, I mean, again, it's a really fascinating and in-depth chat about where these genre stories stand in relation to other types of literature, you know, how how they can have an impact that people sometimes don't think, but also how he crafts these amazing worlds and amazing universes and fits everything in a nine-book saga together, you know. It's not an easy thing to do. He he talks in depth about all of that. And we also talk about what it's like when someone decides to tell you your book is shit on social media. (laughs) (laughs) As we did with Joe there. (laughs) It's, it's Yeah, I'm always interested just to hear that. But, I mean, the good news is Joe was quite sanguine about it, and Daniel is as well. You know, I think that's how you have to be because... Yeah, I think you'd have to roll with it. Otherwise, yeah. you would just become neurotic and exactly people. Exactly. Well, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do take a minute to give us a quick rating on your podcast app and leave a review if you can, because it really helps us climb the charts, which helps us continue to get these great guests. And of course, if anybody wants to get in touch, they can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a tweet to at right underscore gear. But that's all from us and we'll see you next week for the final episode of the season. See you then. 